This is a podcast for Functional Ecology at British Ecological Society publication. Hi everyone, today I'm delighted to welcome Hannah Meyer to the podcast. Hannah's paper, Climatic Effects, Temperature-Mediated Transgenerational Plasticity Influences Movement Behaviour in Green Algae, has been nominated for the 2022 Haldane Prize. This prize is awarded to the best research from an early career researcher. Hannah currently is a research assistant at the Department of Biology Reed College in Portland, USA, and her research interests include how acclimation impacts population and uh, community dynamics, phytoplankton ecology slash physiology, and she's looking to go on to study shrimp ecology and physiology. So hello, Hannah, how are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. Good, good. So let's uh, let's jump in to find out a little bit about yourself. So could you tell us um, sort of where you're from, uh, how you came to study the behavior of this green algae and just sort of discuss your journey towards becoming an ecologist? Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm from Berlin, Germany originally, um, but I went to high school and did my undergrad here in the U.S. Um, I graduated in 2021 from Reed College with a B.A. in biology but um, I'm actually going on, I've been a research assistant for the last two years at Reed, and I'm going on this fall to the University of Utah to pursue a PhD in the lab of Dr. Jody Reimer. Fantastic. Right. So can you tell us a little bit? So you grew up in Berlin, Germany. Um, could you tell us a bit about that, whether the, you know, that love of biology and animals and uh, did it did it start there or did it come to you later? Yeah, actually, it started when I was pretty young. I remember, I think I was in the second grade, we had a class on um, endangered animals, and I had to do a whole project on the Bengal tiger. Um, And then that really got me interested in the idea of extinction. And I think at a a young age, you have a very oversimplified picture of what it means for an organism to be endangered, but it, it really sparked kind of curiosity in me at that point. And actually, we left Germany when I was about seven and we moved to India for my dad's job. And I think there, just being exposed to so many different ecosystems and and different kinds of flora and fauna was was really, really interesting to me growing up. And so that really fueled my my passion for environmental conservation and interest in um, the natural world. Fantastic. So, I mean, Bengal tiger, I, you know, that's that's cropped up. Have you got a, a favorite study organism? I know at the moment it's sort of phytoplankton, but have you got one that was just maybe that was the dream to study and now maybe it's changed? Maybe shrimp are? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think honestly it's changed like eight times in my <laughs> life. When I was in high school, I was really into, you know, marine biology and I really, really wanted to work with sharks in general or Um, something a lot more, what people would consider a lot more charismatic than maybe phytoplankton. Although I think now as someone who studies them, I would fight them on on that (laughs) opinion. But um, yeah, I really love phytoplankton. I think they're, they're a really great uh, study system because they're one, they, you know, they reproduce so quickly and they're so beautiful when you look at them under the microscope and very selfishly, they're super easy to maintain. (laughs) So the entire lab can be gone for like two weeks and everything will be fine. Nothing will crash. Nothing will die. Um, which is great. But um, moving forward, I will probably be working with brine shrimp in the Great Salt Lake, um, just because they're a little bit um, easier to work with in terms of needing lab equipment um, Mm -hmm. than phytoplankton are. So that's kind of where I'm, why I've decided to change my study system. The lab I'm joining is 
relatively new, so they don't have a ton um, of setup yet. So I think that having a system that you can easily identify with the eye will be nice. Fantastic. And what are you looking to explore with these brine shrimp? Uh, it's actually somewhat similar to what I did at Reed, except with instead of thermal acclimation, I'm really interested in looking at acclimation to variable salinity levels. Um, mm-hmm. One of the big things in the news about Utah right now is the Great Salt Lake is drying up. And one of the things that is happening there is the salinity is just increasing even more than it already is. And so I think understanding whether or not the, f- the food web that exists in that system will be stable or if it will crash and whether or not populations will be able to persist and acclimate and adapt will be really, really important. So that's hopefully what I will go on to do this fall. Amazing. Right. So uh, we have a note here that you actually majored in biology and uh, philosophy. Uh, So I wanted to know if you think that studying philosophy has helped you to develop your thinking as a researcher. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the, the biggest aspect where I see philosophy really coming in for me is in my writing. Um, I really love to write, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's one of the things that I actually enjoy most about doing science um, is the sort of the deep dive research and then the write-up of um, papers and experiments and things like that. And yeah, I think really, I didn't, I can't say that I learned to write in my biology courses. I definitely learned to write in my philosophy courses. Um, Mm -hmm. And I actually going into read, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a research biologist or if I wanted to go to law school, which is why I sort of petitioned my own major. And I really heavily involved philosophy in my undergrad. Um, and then in this research assistant position that I've had for the past two years, I kind of realized like, oh, I can continue to take the parts that I love about philosophy and apply them in biology. And I, it, it isn't that black or white, but also I decided I really did not want to go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> well, law school's loss is biology's gain clearly here. Um, so, well, actually, I've already asked you what your favorite study organism is. So I'll ask you what your favorite or who your favorite philosopher is. My favorite philosopher? That's definitely challenging. I studied a lot of ancient philosophy, and so I was always a big Mm -hmm. fan of Plato. Um, But I actually last year sat in on a philosophy of science class, and we read this fantastic book called Why Trust Science by Naomi Oreskes, who's a contemporary philosopher. Um, And that was a fantastic book and definitely helpful to think about as someone who is trying to convince people to believe in science. (laughs) Absolutely. Wonderful. Right. So we, we, we've plugged her, which is good. That's nice. Um, so perhaps now we can move on to talking a little bit about the paper. Um, so the paper is based on your undergraduate research, which is very remarkable. Um, and transgenerational plasticity, it's, it's a really fascinating topic. But just before we jump into all of it, could you explain it in simple terms and tell us what drew you to the topic initially? Yeah, I think one of the things that I realized in beginning this research is that we have a very oversimplified picture of what might happen to organisms in the face of climate change, which is they will either go extinct or they will adapt. And I think there's a lot there's a lot of processes that will impact the outcome of <laughs> between those two. And so we were really interested in figuring out what happens in between organisms experiencing super stressful conditions and then either adapting or going extinct. Um, And one of the things that was really cool about this project was that it really gave us an opportunity to look at how individuals respond to their environment in real time across generations. Um, And 
I think one of the things that I talk about in the paper and that I realized in doing some of this research is that there are not many papers that look at a time scale of over 20 generations like our paper does. And so I think mm -hmm. that that was something we were really interested in because we are in a fortunate position to have a model system that reproduces so quickly. And so, you know, these over 20 generations is only about two weeks worth of work, um, which was awesome. And um, I think in the grand scheme of things, definitely not feasible in a lot of systems, but in this system it was. And so we were really excited about doing some of that um, background research. Amazing. So perhaps we can dig into the paper a little bit more and what you were looking to find, maybe some key results that you'd like to share with the listeners. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think this paper really highlights um, that to understand how organisms will respond to environmental conditions, we have to consider the environmental conditions of previous generations. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, there are not a lot of papers that are able to do it at this time scale. And so one of the the key takeaways that we saw was that temperature affects the movement behavior in these motile green algae for up to 10 generations after being transferred into novel environmental conditions, which is a huge amount of time mm -hmm. uh, and definitely not quite what, you know, not quite as extensive as we were expecting. Um, but it's really important because one of the things it suggests to us is that some organisms are better positioned to withstand stressful conditions which are increasingly common and likely in the face of climate change. Um, and so in our experiment, for example, the uh, populations that were acclimated to their ideal temperature range, which is about 25 degrees Celsius, were the ones that were the most likely to be able to um, navigate out of thermally stressful conditions. And the population that was the least likely to do so was the one that was exposed to heat stress for two weeks and acclimated to this uh, 37.5 degrees Celsius temperature, which is the upper bound of what this species can tolerate. Wow, that's remarkable. So, um, yeah, perhaps you can talk a little bit on the potential consequences of your findings in freshwater systems like lakes. I mean, you're going on to, to study in Salt Lake and, you know, perhaps you can talk about whether these findings from these types of experiments are applicable to real world situations or other organisms. Yeah, I think... One of the things that, so one of the things that our lab is really passionate about is kind of uniting lab work, field work, and mathematical modeling. And so one of the things we really wanted to do was highlight that this the idea of previous um, environmental exposure from different generations can impact um, the response to novel conditions and have that built into predictive models in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do think that that will be really important in freshwater ecosystems, especially lakes and ponds. Uh, we do some field work up in the Mount St. Helens area, and it's really crazy to see every year how different these ponds in this very small area are. Some of them are, you know, thermally really consistent from top to bottom. Others have what we call thermal refuges, which is when one area stays um, more constant and less stressful than the other area. So the bottom might be cool and the top might be really hot. And so one of the things we're really interested in is will these organisms be able to take advantage of those spatial and um, the spatial distribution of temperature in these systems? Mm -hmm. um, when I first joined the lab, the PI that I work with at Reed, Dr. Sam Fay, was uh, working on a manuscript that has since come out and looking at behavioral thermoregulation in a species of, I believe, uh, lizard. And so we know that other systems do behavioral thermoregulation, which was kind of the driving 
um, motivation for this project was to say, hey, you know, we know that systems beyond phytoplankton do behavioral thermoregulation. Now in this really easy system, can we understand how that those impacts exist across generations? And mm -hmm. can people use that as a reason to then say, hey, you know, fund this project to look at these transgenerational impacts in a species that takes more than two weeks to you know, get across 20 generations? Right, fantastic. So, um, yeah, one of the most interesting findings of your study is the underperformance of populations when they transition from one temperature to another. Um, so did this differ from your expectations? And can you perhaps provide some kind of background on this phenomenon and explain it for our listeners? Yeah, for sure. Um, when we initially did this research, so there's it's it's pretty well documented that when you transition phytoplankton species, some of them, obviously not all of them, but some of them from um, cold to ambient or hot temperatures, that they go through a period of overperformance, which is kind of what we were anticipating. So it was definitely interesting to see underperformance occur. Um, I think it one of the things that's really hard in talking about the paper is that because we had these three acclimation treatments in these three novel conditions, as well as the control, there's, there are always a lot of moving pieces and any given, um, any given treatment, it was, it was always hard to make a general statement because for example, the warm acclimated population transferred into the hot acclimated population just performed very differently than the, the one that stayed constant. And even sometimes the controls were doing things that we were like, why is the control doing what it's doing? Um, so we were definitely surprised, and I think we still haven't fully figured out why things were happening the way that they were. And so I think that those are definitely some of the like future questions to consider of why are we seeing what mechanism, what underlying mechanisms are driving what we're seeing now that we know that this is happening. Why is it happening? And we don't have a very solid answer to that yet. We have ideas, but right. So perhaps we can start to talk a little bit about how this project came to be. So I think everyone has gone through the absolute horrors of COVID and we're not really out of it, but that's had a massive impact on, you know, science and research, obviously, especially ecologists who weren't really able to get out into the field and, you know, perhaps didn't have access to their study organisms and had to pivot to something else. So I was wondering if you could just talk about the, uh, yeah, the germination of the idea and the design of the study. Yeah, um, this project was really born out of what I would probably call a uh, project failure because my first, and when I say failure, I just mean that we really didn't answer the question we set out to answer the first, for the first research project I did with Dr. Fay. Um, and so in, in 2019, I did a, a summer research project that was meant to investigate behavioral thermoregulation in Daphnia magna, which are a species of zooplankton. Um, and we have these really unique uh, incubators at, in our lab that have these two meter long tubes that run through them. And so we're able to create these very artificial thermal gradients. But it's really cool because we can do a lot with the kind of cycles and the, the differences between night and day temperatures and things like that. Um, and so we wanted to, to see how Daphnia magna would react to these temperature gradients. Um, as it turns out, we couldn't get Daphnia to live in our <laughs> lab. And so it's hard to say, you know, what impacts you're seeing when your organism is dying in what you sh would consider ideal conditions. 
Um, so I spent the entire summer pretty much trying to figure out how to get the species to live. I finally had a breakthrough like a week and a half before my project was over. Um, and it turns out that the best way to culture them in our lab was to take a trash can, throw it on our roof, fill it with hose water and just throw Daphnia in there. And they liked that way more than the, you know, nice sterile media we made for them when we were feeding them, uh, the, the lab bought, um, food and all that. They just, they wanted leaf litter and hose water. Um, and, but we, so we knew from other papers that, uh, Clamidomonas reinhardii, which is the species of motel green algae that we ended up working with, um, was is able to move away from thermally stressful environments. Um, there was a 2018 paper in Scientific Reports that showed that. And we also know that they're able to move towards optimal conditions. Um, specifically, there was an experiment done with light where they saw that uh, individuals would move towards light conditions. Um, and so we were like, wow, we could really... We could try to redo this experiment in with a system that we know <laughs> well and we know <laughs> survives and does well in our lab. Um, and so we really wanted to look at this population level response, um, which we actually were later able to incorporate back into the project, which is in the paper what we refer to as this dispersal assay. Um, but that was really supposed to be my undergrad thesis. And then COVID happened and things did not work out the way we wanted them to. So... Uh, we had a lot of stringent restrictions on how many people could be in lab. And at the time, Dr. Fay had a lab manager, um, Tamara Layden, who's one of the co-authors on this paper. And so we tried to limit lab use to the two of them. Um, and also, I was a full-time remote student for my own health purposes. So I wasn't, I wasn't even in Portland during all of this. And so we had to create an experiment that would take less time to do in the lab um, and would have a predominant data analysis that could happen remotely where the raw data. So what ended up happening was uh, Tamara Layden collected the raw data files, which were these video clips and then sent them to me. And I analyzed the video clips to get the data frames and then did analysis on that data. Um, and so that's how we ended up looking first at the individual and then at the population level when restrictions kind of loosened and we were able to get more people back into the lab and I was able to come back to Portland. So yeah, it was kind of a crazy ride there for like a year and a half trying to quickly figure out how to adapt the project. But it, I think it worked out really, really well and for the best. Fantastic. Thanks for that. So I'm going to ask you now to get your crystal ball out. And uh, I want you to sort of look towards the future for yourself, but also look towards the future for, you know, for for the discipline, for, for biology or ecology um, and just sort of Talk to me about where your research, where you hope for it to be directed towards next and where the general field of research perhaps should be directed next. You know, I want you to talk about what implications you, you know, you hope implications from your paper that you hope will cause some changes perhaps in the direction of the research and a little bit on how you expect considerations of the long term nature of phenotypic changes um, to impact future research or applications. There's a lot to unpack there, so we can break that down if we need to. <laughs> yeah, I'll start by talking about what maybe we thought about as we were wrapping up this project of next steps for our research and, and the paper that we we wrote. Um, and I think we, we've already touched on this a little bit, but really looking at these underlying mechanisms that drive these processes could be really important. As I said, we have some theories about what could be, could be potentially causing these things, like 
nutrient stores changing with acclimation, that kind of stuff. But we really need to do more work in order to fully understand why we're seeing what we're seeing. Um, and then I think the other big one um, that I'm sure will come up for a lot of people is, does this happen in other systems? Um, and how often is it that these long-term changes and across generational changes aren't really observed because the assays aren't long enough, which makes perfect sense if you have a, a species that takes a long time to reproduce. It's just not feasible to be doing this research mm-hmm. across generations and generations. But I think that was one of the things we definitely looked into of, are these transgenerational impacts not talked about as much as they should be just given the nature of doing long-term research. Um, and then I think also just in general, like one of the things that the la- our lab is really passionate about is um, creating these predictive models, what I talked about earlier. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about um, as a researcher is really unifying lab field, lab and field work and um, theoretical modeling. And that's one of the things that I looked for in looking for a PhD advisor too. Um, Cause I think that any one of those components is super important by itself. But when you get all three talking to each other and really working together, I feel like that's really where um, kind of the, ma- the magic of science uh, happens. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's something that I've really enjoyed. And I think it, it kind of um, pushes our ideas a little bit further. And I know for me, this project wouldn't have been possible without the help of um, someone who's more, um, mathematical modeling um, oriented and so that was really mm-hmm. important as well. Nice so um, one thing I, I always get when I speak to people who work in policy um, to do with ecology and science is you know they want synthesis which is great you were talking about combining the lab and the field so I was just wondering in terms of um, perhaps like actionable thing maybe not actionable isn't the right thing it's more a key takeaway to someone who, because this has to be with a view towards perhaps changing climate, you know, change climate change sort of future scenarios and things like that, and how organisms will react to these wild variances in temperature and all these types of things. Um, if you were speaking to someone who was doing policy um, and you were trying to sort of talk about the research, is there anything that you would try to sort of sell them on? Is there anything that you would be like, this is really important? For the future for you to know and to plan for you know potential scenarios yeah i mean i think there's there'd be a lot there but i think that in general one of the things that is really important is that these models that we create um to predict what the future might look like are ever changing and there are so many variables that go into that um mm-hmm. that it's really hard to just say Oh, you know, well, this scientist said that maybe it will be okay in 20 years if, you know, if this one thing doesn't change or if the temperature doesn't increase quite as much Mm -hmm. as we think it will. Um, And I think just understanding that those kinds of predictions are super nuanced. And in order to really understand what they mean, you have to break down the Mm -hmm. model and look at what variables go into it. And that, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is it also varies from system to system. And some systems will be more vulnerable to certain changes than others. Mm -hmm. And certain um, landscapes will provide better buffers for climate change than others. And so I think that's one thing that it's really important because, you know, you read the news and you hear these big stories of like, well, you know, this person said that it would be just fine if it doesn't increase beyond two degrees Celsius. And it's like, well, it, de- it, it really depends on what you're looking at. And you can't just make a blanket statement like yeah. that. And, and even as a scientific community, we're constantly learning more about what 
how these changes will impact our specific model systems, let alone like the entirety of the world and every ecosystem that exists. So we're looking at engendering caution in grand statements and as much collaboration, I suppose, in sort of interdisciplinary research as possible, you know, all hands on deck. Wonderful. Um, Yeah. So just as we're kind of coming towards the end of the podcast, I was wondering if there's any shout outs you'd like to give to people who have helped you along the way. Yeah, totally. Um, Definitely the staff at Reed College in the biology department who often go way underappreciated, but definitely are the reason that we're able to do any of the research, especially in our lab, Um, particularly Jay Ewing and Greta Glover, who really, really helped me with this project and helped build the equipment. You know, those two meter long tubes I've talked about that we have in our incubators, Jay helped us build those and, and Greta helped me figure out TrackMate and really worked with me a lot during COVID, which was great. Um, and then my PI, Sam Fay, who is just the most supportive, um, PI and mentor that someone could hope for, especially at this career stage and, um, all the other co-authors and, you know, my family for making this work possible. Um, Colin Kramer and his lab really just adopted me right into their lab group after I graduated, which was really nice. Um, and then also definitely functional ecology and you, Frank, you know, this has been a really great experience in terms of having this be my first paper that I published. And I think that not everyone has a really good experience with the first journal they work with. And so I've definitely really appreciated mm-hmm. all of the support and the understanding, especially, you know, working across time zones and, and with different people during COVID. There were a lot more delays than I think we had hoped for, but I really appreciated that <laughs> there was always support and understanding there. Wonderful. Right. So that, that brings me on to, well, it's a testament to the strength of the paper because ultimately if it wasn't good enough, it would have been rejected very quickly. Um, and we absolutely love this paper. Um, and it actually was the cover image for the December 2022 um, issue, uh, which as a lay person, which I am, um, I remember looking at it and thinking, Ah, Christmas lights. (laughs) It's perfect for December. Um, So I was wondering maybe if you could talk about that picture, because we'll we'll definitely share it in the promotion of this podcast. Um, And, you know, I thought it was beautiful. So it's the tracked movements of the, I'm not even going to try and say the name, so it's green algae to me, (laughs) the tracked movements. Perhaps you can talk about um, the significance of that picture and why why you chose that as the one to share for the plain language summary. Yeah, for sure. Um, So that picture is actually pretty standard output from TrackMe. Um, That's what it looks like after the software has looked at all of the frames and identified particles and kind of identified uh, their trajectories um, across time. And I think when I first started working with TrackMate, I was really blown away by how beautiful these images were. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. one of the reasons we picked that one was (laughs) for just aesthetic reasons. There were some really cool colors (laughs) there. Mm-hmm. But it was actually from one of our um, experimental treatments. I Somewhere in my notes know exactly which one, but at this point in time, I do not remember. Um, <laughs> but it was, yeah, we, we figured it would be cool to share. You don't really get a lot of cool images from this sort of more quantitative world is one of the things that we spent a lot of time talking about. And so we thought that this was a really unique picture to share instead of just sharing a picture of clamidomonas which are also very pretty um and always a really solid mm-hmm. fallback option but we we're like oh well, this would be a really cool opportunity to highlight some of that other 
the other work that we did and honestly working with Trackmate was a huge part of this project. Um, and so I was really excited to get to share that because I did spend many a morning until like 4 a.m. working through Trackmate and analyzing <laughs> my data. So I was like, ah, I get to plug this thing that took me forever. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And um, yeah, just as we wrap up, uh, as I said at the start of this podcast, Hannah's paper has been nominated for the um 2022 Haldane Prize. Um, she is one of 12 nominees at the moment. Strong competition, um, but we wish her all the best of luck. Uh, scoring's still ongoing, um, but we just want to ask how it feels to be nominated for the Haldane Prize and perhaps your some perspectives on it, your opinion of a kind of prize like this. Yeah, I mean, it feels incredible. I'm super honoured to have my name on this list amongst so many other amazing early career researchers it was it's really really cool and I think being so early on in my scientific career it definitely feels feels really really good and very validating um you know I think as probably most researchers can share I've you know I've loved this project at times I have felt so many frustrations with it there are times when we were working on the manuscript and it was in review and I was like I can't I can't read it anymore I just needed to be done (laughs) Um, but it feels really gratifying to know that all of that was really worth it. Um, and that, you know, I think too, for me, especially working on so much of this during COVID, I felt really isolated during a lot of the research. And so having it go out into the world and be well received has felt really, really good. Um, and I think, you know, had I known that then, I feel like sometimes those frustrations would have been a little easier to push through, but it definitely like in hindsight, it it feels really, really good. So yeah, I'm really excited. Good, yeah, shows the the value of perseverance, I suppose. Um, all right, so yeah, as 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 we're finishing up now, I just want to remind all of our listeners that a link to the paper and the plain language summary, which I implore everyone to look at because that picture is gorgeous, um, will be available in the description of this podcast. On top of that, Hannah has very very helpfully provided blog posts as well for our uh, functional ecology blog, and there's one in German translation, which we love. Love it, love it, love it when people are uh, inclusive of, you know, different people who speak different languages. So um, please do go read that blog post as well and a lovely picture in there as well of uh, the green algae that Hannah worked on. Um, So yeah, as we wrap up, I just want to say that, uh, well, I want to wish Hannah the best of luck with this nomination, but also in the future. Um, I really hope you can continue to pursue your research goals um and if i can cheekily say so that you continue submitting other exciting papers to functional ecology hopefully wonderful thank you for your time hannah i really appreciate it yeah thank you so much for having me